0: This is a special midweek tax update for August 31st, 2005. This particular update is going to deal with developments that relate to the Hurricane Katrina disaster occurring in the Gulf Coast and the tax implications involved in that uh, situation and the impact that will occur to taxpayers involved as we move forward and as the losses begin to mount the IRS announced yesterday that they are giving an extension of time to file returns that are due to those who are in the affected areas and the IRS published this news release giving a list of the counties involved in Louisiana Mississippi and Alabama for which there will be a relief from filing deadlines in general There will be an extension for federal tax deposit penalty waivers uh, from August 29th through September 23rd. As well, returns that are due during the period August 29th to October 31st will be filed timely if filed by October 31st. Now, the details for exactly which returns are covered and which ones are affected are available on the IRS website under relief details if you follow the link from the main page. Key thing to note. If you have one of these relief positions that you're going to make use of, you need to designate Hurricane Katrina in red, relief-related forms in that color. Now, since most of us don't have a printer that printing in red that prints our tax returns, I suspect most of us are using laser printers that are black and white for purposes of uh, printing tax returns. That will mean you likely have to hand write and label any such form to be filed. But be sure you follow the instructions involved here if you have a taxpayer in an affected area. Now, while those of us who are fortunate enough not to be in the area and not to be impacted by the hurricane uh, are going to be able to take some time to look at this. We presume that those in the affected areas right now probably have other things to do than worry about the tax impact at the moment. But it will be important if you have clients in that area to be ready when they do begin to wonder what the tax issues are as well as to know some of the breaks that will be available to those that exist under the law for those in federally declared disaster areas. By the way, to determine a federally declared a disaster area, that list is updated at the FEMA site, www.fema.gov. You can find a list of the specific counties that have been declared disaster areas at any time in the country there, and obviously the information on Hurricane Katrina is currently dominating at the top of the list there. But you can take a look on that site for the disaster areas and find out, where, and which taxpayers would be involved. Now, a couple of issues come up. The issue for what you do in disasters, we usually don't keep up in detail on this because we don't run into this every day. A federally declared disaster is not something that's normal in our practice. However, there are some useful resources that unfortunately in recent years were developed simply because of various disasters, primarily hurricane-related ones, that have hit other states, Florida being key. And those resources are something you need to go back and look at now if you have any clients in the New Orleans area especially, but also in any of the other areas impacted by this storm. RIA this morning referenced a guide that they put out last September uh, that helps with disaster losses and how they're covered. That guide went over a number of special provisions in the law, and we'll discuss some of them here as we go forward, as well as some of the options you have to make some choices in elections or which taxpayers will have in this area. First, clearly this is a casualty loss under Section 165. That's going to be easy. Traditionally, the issue has been, is it a sudden event it seems fairly clear we have sudden, plus we have the federally declared disaster areas that gets rid of the discussion in many cases as to what was considered a casualty loss. So we're going to meet these tests. Now, basically remember, though, this deduction is an itemized deduction for individuals if it's a non-business property, and it is subject to a couple of limitations. First, there's a $100 floor, so each casualty loss is reduced by $100. More significantly, it is reduced by 10% of the adjusted gross income for the year reported. So this can have an impact on how, a, how much of a deduction individuals will get. Now, essentially, in an affected area, federally declared disaster area, you have an election which you can make to treat the casualty loss as incurred in the immediately preceding tax year under Section 165 I1. So there is a choice. The disaster, the loss is incurred in 2005. You have an option to take that loss back and treat it as if it was incurred in 2004 and apply for immediate refund based on that, or you can wait and file it with your 2005 return claimant on the 2005 return. Now, how do you make that choice? Well, one part seems to say, I can get the money today. But realize, with that 10% of AGI limitation, and the fact that in many cases people's earnings and income are going to be negatively impacted the rest of 2005 by the effects of this hurricane, The reality may be that it may be more beneficial to get it on this year's return due to losing less of the deduction because of the net operating, because of the issues involved with the loss from the AGI limitation. RIA suggested in their guide last year, and it seems to make sense, that normally if a taxpayer can afford to wait, it is usually better to wait until next April to decide whether to make the election to claim the loss on the prior year or to go ahead and claim it in the year the loss was incurred. Now, once you make that election, you have 90 days in which you can unmake the election. So it is important if you file for that refund, you only have a short time period to change your mind, after which the election becomes irrevocable. So this is not one where you can file the claim today and then next year when you determine the refund would have been better or you would have gotten a better result had you claimed it on 2005, amend your way back to that position. At least as the law stands now, that's not a possibility. Therefore, you may need to consider the fact that some taxpayers may be eligible. If that is the case, you need to consider the election. The method for making the election Is provided by the IRS under regulations. Basically, the election is made with that return. Now, it is made under regulation 1.165 11, and essentially, it needs to be made, must be made by the later of the due date for filing the return for the year in which the disaster actually occurred or the due date with extensions for the preceding year. Generally, of course, the due date for the tax year for which the disaster occurred is going to be the later of the two. So it would be next April when we have the deduction. Another key item to consider when doing this is, remember, net operating loss computation is not, is not negatively impacted, shall we say. This is not treated as a personal deduction. For purposes of computing the NOL, or phrased differently, you can get a net operating loss generated by the casualty loss, and you can carry that loss back. Note, if you meet the requirements as well in the federally declared disaster areas, you can carry that loss back three years rather than two. So even an individual taxpayer who has no trade or business and has no other reason they would ever have filed a net operating loss, May be in a position now to be filing a net operating loss. Again, that is going to be impacted now by which year you claim it in because that's also going to impact which year you would go back to. Remember that and keep that in mind that the net operating loss is in play. I would suspect that in many cases the losses may be so severe, unfortunately, that it will easily eliminate the taxpayer's income for the year it is taken and then the question will become taking the loss back. That is a computation you need to be aware of and ready to go with. Basically, if you look under the Net Operating Loss Rules, you will discover quickly that under Section 172, there is a specific issue involved with the fact that there is a deduction, there is not added back, personal deductions do not include the casualty loss deductions. It's not worded real clearly, but when you follow the references through, you will discover the casualty losses aren't in there. Now, the carryback period for three years falls into one of three categories. That is a non-farm casualty loss, the eligible loss, a small business disaster loss, or a farm disaster loss. And those three-year periods are defined under Section 172, uh B1F little 2 has a definition for the carrybacks and the various rules that are involved with these carrybacks. Essentially, remember, you get potentially a longer carryback. So what that means is if you have a taxpayer who is impacted by this and you have come to a determination of what the loss will be, the casual loss will be, then you are in a position to make the decision based upon how it will impact the year in which the loss is claimed, as well as the carry back. So this is a computation that will have to be gone through. How much of a loss are you allowed? Well, in general, you're allowed a loss equal to the decrease in the fair market value of the property or your basis in the property. And we determine these losses using some sets of rules now, if the property is simply totally destroyed and wiped out and there is no reimbursement, it becomes fairly simple. Uh, you just basically probably have a basis deduction unless the fair market value prior to the casualty loss was less than the basis, not likely to be the case. The next problem, what if the loss is insured and what if the insurance payment generates a gain? because the property has appreciated. Well, Section 1033 provides for a replacement period when you have a basically an involuntary conversion, as this will be. As well, there are more liberal rules allowed for an involuntary conversion when that involuntary conversion takes place in a federally declared disaster area. So under Section 1033, if you have a home in a federally declared disaster area, you get a few extra breaks in 1033-H. First, the gain realized from insurance proceeds for unscheduled personal property that is property in the home but not scheduled for insurance purposes is not recognized. Insurance proceeds from this conversion of the principal residence and its contents are treated other than the unscheduled personal property are treated as a common fund for purposes of the involuntary conversion rule. So I don't need to match it up. I don't need to replace my property with property equal at least to that amount and my real property with real property equal to at least that amount. I can use them as one pool and replace them in general. And we essentially get a longer period to close out the 1033 transaction. The replacement ends generally ends four years after the close of the first tax year in which any part of the conversion gain is realized. That's a four-year four year term instead of the two years. As well, Section 121D5A uh, deals with coordination that an involuntary conversion is treated as a sale for Section 121 purposes. However, 121 will apply only to the excess of any gain that would now be recognized that wasn't deferred under 1033. So we get a benefit there. As well, under Section 121C, we have the right to get a reduced home sale exclusion under 121 if we have our conversion. Uh, Basically, this is considered under Regulation 1.121-3E2 an unforeseen circumstance. The involuntary conversion of a residence, not a natural or man-made disaster resulting in casualty to a principal residence. So we do get, now this would qualify for the partial exclusion. That is if the taxpayer didn't meet the two-year test. If the taxpayer meets the two-year test, then the full $250,000, $500,000 exclusion is in play. But if it does not meet any one of the three two-year tests, you can still get a partial exclusion based upon the fact that this is considered to be an unforeseen circumstance. As well, if property, if property is held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment is involuntarily converted as a result of this, uh, presidentially declared disaster, taxpayer gets a gain, then you're allowed to treat as similar property related to property any tangible property of a type held for productive use in a trade or business counts as equivalent. Now, realize that there is a quirk there while the property that you gave up could be either investment property or trader or business property if you're under this if you're going to try to qualify under this rule your replacement property has to be the trader business property so watch out don't get trapped by that you can't re- you can't use investment property to replace the property if you're going to if you're going to need to make use of the 1033 h2 rules to get a similar test in place to get something treated as similar now, some taxpayers, after this gets started, will will suddenly panic when they realize that their records for last year are now either missing, destroyed, or unusable. Taxpayers may get very concerned about how that will impact them when they go for filing tax returns and what can be done. For people who are working in this situation, I would Remind you that we can operate under the Cohen rule in a case like this. Now, the Cohen case is an old tax court case that dealt with George M. Cohen, who was a wonderful entertainer, but kept lousy records. And the IRS had initially taken the position that all of his deductions were disallowed because he couldn't substantiate them through records. The tax court said, we can't buy that. We know who he is. We know he had to incur expenses because he would have. So it's not reasonable to say no expenses. So you're allowed to reasonably estimate. The taxpayer was allowed to reasonably estimate the expenses. Now, Congress has written that out of the law in certain cases by requiring specific documentation to claim a deduction. For instance, under 274-D, for property covered by that, you must have the documentation required according to the law. However, When faced with a case like this, reality is that we tend to see things interpreted very broadly, and we tend to see as well that the courts in general in this, where there is not a restriction, are going to be somewhat lenient in this regard, and number two, that even where there is a restriction, they will probably work to find alternative documentation that they can use or alternative evidence that could be used to indicate that the the Deduction is allowed. Uh, They may not be able to go literally to the Cohen ruling, but they can get close to its result. Now what that means, number one, you can reassure your taxpayers that just because there are no records at this point does not mean they will get no deductions. However, I would remind any taxpayer so impacted and who lost their records that the court will use reasonable methods to estimate and the court will look to other evidence to try and determine what's likely reasonable. What other evidence? Well, very possibly, if this issue were to arise, the quality of records in the years after the disaster will reasonably be used as a method of determining what probably was there at the time of the disaster. For that reason, a taxpayer who has suffered this type of a loss most likely should take care moving forward that they have excellent records for the next few years. So if examined, it will be reasonable to presume that those records are a very solid indication of what was actually true in the years where the records are no longer available. So be sure to remind taxpayers to just be a little careful there, but otherwise they should be fine under the Cohen rule and under the fact that we have an issue here that was out of the taxpayer's control. As the Cohen Court mentioned, how much leeway we give depends largely about how much control the taxpayer had over the reasons why we don't have records. In the case of many people in the New Orleans area, there is virtually no control at this point over why we don't have records. Finally, a more general issue to consider, not related there, and I know this is a tax update, but disaster preparedness is one of those issues that we all should be concerned about in our information systems. Unfortunately, I think a number of people in the New Orleans area especially may be going to learn a very rough lesson or are aware right now that there is a problem. The problem is one that we saw to a certain extent in the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center when it was reported that certain businesses that had their backups Had moved their offsite version of the backups into the other tower, so they had their main system in in the one tower. They had their backup files stored in the other tower. In theory, they thought that provided them with security because what were the odds of a common disaster causing both towers to basically to have their to have their material destroyed? Well, as we discovered, unfortunately, there was a common disaster, in which case both towers were destroyed, and in which case the material was destroyed. In the case of New Orleans, I suspect we may run into a similar problem. Some people's off-site backups will prove to have not been far enough off-site it is probably important for all of us at this point to consider looking at our own emergency backups and our own off-site backup policies whether we have the backups physically stored in a location that is unlikely to be affected by a common disaster. For instance, here in the Phoenix area, if your office was located near the Salt River, and your home is located near the Salt River, even if the two are widely dispersed, reality is that a flood on the Salt River could cause problems in both locations. Similarly, you need to look at whatever situation you're in, what are our chances of having an off-site problem. Generally, you're going to be better off trying to move things as far away physically from the location being backed up as you can, so that the two copies of the data are dispersed as far as you can reasonably make them. If the likely disasters include things of the scale of a hurricane, then I believe you have a much tougher situation to deal with, because there a common disaster could easily impact both locations if they are in the same area you may need to consider finding a way to get off-site moved well off-site, at least in some form for backup purposes. This is an issue we will need to consider moving forward. This has been the tax update for August thirty first, 2005.